turn, if you would, in God's Word to the book of Hebrews. I uh, had a real joy in preaching through this book. I finished it, oh, early last year. Uh, It's been one of the great uh, treats to be able to work uh, in this wonderful book and to preach through it. And you may know uh, that a number of more modern commentators particularly have pointed out that the form of the book, the epistle to the Hebrews, tends to assume a kind of sermonic shape. So that is to say, the epistle appears to be something of a sermon, and it has the structure of a sermon. You may have, I mean, you can go online, go on YouTube, and, and see some people reading the whole book as, as if it were a sermon, you know, reading it from the pulpit in that fashion. And chapters 12 and 13, the closing chapters, particularly then focus on, you might say, application. Because up to this point, there's a very rich development of the doctrine of Christ. This probably has as rich a development of the doctrine of Christ as you get in the Bible. Wonderful, wonderful uh, exposition of of the work of Christ particularly. And so we come now to Hebrews 12, which as I say has this this sermonic uh, applicatory sense about it. And we're going to just look at verses 1 to 3 this morning. This evening we'll look at some additional verses from here. This is God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray now that you would by your spirit, the selfsame spirit who gave this word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. The dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Hebrews preacher... And you know why I call him that. And his hearers here in the book of Hebrews were no strangers to trials and suffering. Chapter 11, just before this one, spoke of faith triumphant. I'm sure you're familiar with that great chapter. Some people call it something like the Faith Hall of Fame. But it also spoke of faith tried. And here our preacher recalls all those of 11, Abel, Enoch, Moses, Joshua, David, and the rest, when he speaks of a great cloud of witnesses. Who's he talking about? The people he just talked about in chapter 11. That's the great cloud of witnesses. I guess it's appropriate to be talking about great clouds right now. 
That's the great cloud of witnesses. And we can recall many others in the history of the church. In other words, he's speaking about those just up to that point, right? In the progression of God's revelation. We could go on and say that great cloud of witnesses then would involve Paul and Peter and John and those of, of the New Testament who, who are not mentioned here because that's all in process. Or church history. We could think of, of Augustine and Anselm and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Rutherford and Owens and coming to America, Edwards and Hodge and Kuiper, going back a little bit. We're going to not leave those guys out. Kuiper and Bavink and Machen and a lot of others, right? They're part of the great cloud of witnesses. But, I mean, your friends, your, your, your relatives, your, your, your mom and your dad, your grandparents, your aunts and your uncles, those who know and loved Jesus, those who pointed to Jesus, those who spoke to you and taught you about Jesus, they're part of the great cloud of witnesses. The great cloud of witnesses refers to all those who have gone before. All those who have gone before and now witness. And you say, well, are they witnesses Linsky addresses this. Are they, are they witnesses of us? Some sort of see them as like spectators in the stands. And we're, we're running this race that we are reading about here, right? That's the picture here. We're running a race. And they're spectators in the stands cheering us on, possibly. But it seems clear that they're much more witnesses to us than witnesses of us. They're witnesses to us. Of the life of faith. They're witnesses to us of the life of faith. They have gone ahead. They've blazed the trail, you might say, for us to follow. A trail laid out, we're told here by Jesus Christ, the pioneer. He's the real trailblazer, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So all those who have gone before us, who trusted in Christ, witness to us of the life of faith and what the preacher here is particularly really in the next two chapters and it begins here what the preacher is going to call us to is considering all the saints who have gone before he urges you and this is one of the great concerns of the book of Hebrews he urges you to press on press forward keep going keep going in this great race, the Christian faith, keep going along the path of faith that you're involved in. And he calls you in this to lay aside hindrances and run the race. Secondly, to look to and follow after Jesus in faith. And finally, to learn endurance in all hardships. Lay aside hindrances, look to Jesus, learn endurance. That's what you're called to, as you're called to press on. Because the book of Hebrews is very concerned not with just how you start the Christian faith, as it were, how you begin trusting Christ. It's very concerned that you continue to do so. Day in and day out, through all difficulties, through all trials, that you keep running the race. Well, the first point is that you're called to lay aside hindrances and run the race. 
And the metaphor employed here to lay aside hindrances and run the race is, is, is an athletic metaphor commonly used. Paul particularly uses that a lot, but it's used here. And one can't run a race right with excess baggage or weight. You need to put that aside. You're called to lay aside every weight. You can think of it this way. If you're going to run a race, you condition yourself, you slim down, and you dress lightly. The Greeks took this to something of an extreme in their athletic competitions. They dressed so lightly, they didn't dress at all. But So this would be known in that day that you, that you lay things aside. You lay aside whatever hinders and doesn't help you in the running of the race. I recognized as a young Christian that I needed to do this. Uh, when I was about 19 or 20, I was so involved in, in my love of music that I couldn't come to the Bible or prayer without just music filling my head. And I, I was convicted that I just had to set this aside and, and lessen it for some time. And maybe you think, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have been listening to bad music anyway. It wasn't bad music. It was exquisitely good music. But it was too much, and I needed to lay it aside. It was something good. You see, when he says, lay aside hindrances, at this point, I don't believe the preacher is talking about sin. Now, he's going to say sin in just a sec here. But he's saying, lay aside hindrances, which could even be God's good gifts to you. It could be your job. It could be family commitments. In other words, it could be something that's keeping you from loving and serving the Lord. It could just be the busyness of your life in which you don't find any time to read the Word, to join together as a family and hear that maybe after dinner, to personally come to the Word and, and to come before God in prayer, your spiritual life. And I've always found it interesting when you're doing house visitations and you say to people, how's it going? How's, it, how's your family devotional life? How are your personal devotional lives going? Well, we're very busy. We don't really have time for that. And I say, oh, I see. Do, do you have time to, to sleep? Do you have time to eat? And they look at you like, you know, you grew another head or something. And the point is, is you do what you want to do. You find time for what it is you want to do. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Don't be dishonest. We do what we want to do. And so we need to lay aside that which would keep us from loving God and serving God, whether it's, whether it's just in our personal lives, our family lives, our corporate life. And sometimes you ask people to, to do things in and for the church. And it's like, well, I can't do that. And I understand things are complicated. But that shouldn't, if that's always the answer, you've got to say, what are your priorities? Lay aside hindrances. And these can be good gifts. You need to lay aside whatever hobby, employment, time taker, TV, sports, hunting, film, internets, music. I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm saying they need to be rightly used. But they can keep you from your service to Christ in your personal walk with Him, in your family, in your ability to serve Him publicly. Now, I'm going to mention sin. You're to lay aside not only weights that hold you back, that, that may be okay, may be good gifts of God, but especially sin 
which clings so closely is the translation I have here or as you have it in the text that I read that you're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles some things weigh us down texting, online shopping, Facebook, YouTube but sin entangles our feet bringing us down, causing us to fall, to stumble this is not so much, I think, besetting sin. Some will say, well, this is talking about besetting sin, the, the sin that clings so closely. That's besetting sin, as in some particular sin that, that troubles you. It wouldn't exclude this, of course, but rather I think it means more broadly sin, the flesh, the old man. It says sin that so easily entangles. It's not just talking about a particular sin, but it's talking about putting off all sin, dying to it all we're to die to the old man as we live to righteousness as new men and women in Christ. One writer said, sin is sticky. It's hard to let go. It's, sin is the kind of thing that, you know, Thomas Brooks talks about it as something that can be very attractive to you. Sin, maybe it's you, you, you're going to let this person at work have a piece of your mind. Uh, or you're going you're gonna, to... Um, you're going to show your neighbor who's boss in this property dispute you're having. Or, you know, some, often things like that. And it can be something that's very attractive to us or it feels good and, and we're attracted. And, and the, the, the devil, as it were, says, you can always repent afterwards. But Brooks talks about how then afterwards repentance becomes the hardest thing. It's, it's, it's not so easy. And he talks about how the devil will show you the bait and hide the hook. Right? So you, that's what you do when you're fishing. You show the bait and hide the hook so that you go for that bait. And it's hooked. And who you He's got you. And you're really in trouble. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep doing that. But just enough to make the point. These witnesses of chapter 11 speak to you about laying aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. You might say, wait a minute, Pastor. Okay, that, that list in chapter 11 has got Samson in it and David in it. Okay? They failed, didn't they? Yeah. They languished. They fell behind in the race. Maybe you have, even lately. I mean, to say, well, David sinned and Samson sinned, and that sin cost them an awful lot. They suffered because of that sin. And as I say, maybe, maybe you've just been giving way to sin lately. But here's what I want to tell you. That Samson and David, being persons of faith, repented. And they knew God's gracious forgiveness by the blood of the Lamb. Let me encourage you to as well. Have you been giving way to hindrances, both distractions and sins? It's never too late for faith and its accompanying grace Repentance, And that's really what this point is about. This laying aside hindrances and running the race is another way of saying repent. You need to identify the things in your lives, whether they're just distractions or whether they're real sins, that you need to repent of, that you need to not let you, not let block you, as it were, in the race. And here's a word of encouragement. The Lord is more ready to forgive and receive you than you are to come to Him. 
Lay aside hindrances and run the race. In any case, get right back up and into the race when you fall. Well, let's just be clear. We, we keep referring to this race. Our, our writer does. Let us run with perseverance. The race. Let's be clear what we mean by the race. The race is the life you're called to live in Christ, right? A life of faith, a life of joy, triumphs, trials, sufferings, even persecution, as those here experienced. And this race, and maybe you've been waiting for this. Here it is. Here it goes. This race is not a hundred meter dash. It's not a mile. You know what I'm about to say. It's a marathon. I didn't have to come and tell you this today. You know it. You know that you're in a race. If you're a Christian, if your hope is in Christ, and I've come here to remind you that in this race you need to lay aside the hindrances. That is to say, you need to repent. We always need to repent. Luther called our lives lives of repentance. And that repentance includes even the misuse of God's good things as well as doing things we shouldn't do. But you need to lay them aside in this marathon. Now, if when you hear the word marathon, you're like, I tend to be, oh, I'm tired. Marathon. I didn't need to hear that. If that makes you faint when you hear it and to feel weak, then you're just in the right place. Because Paul discovered that in his weakness, God's strength is made perfect. How much more for you? The hymn writer put it this way. Understanding that when you're weak, you're in the right place for God's grace and to become strong. The hymn writer said, the only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And so when I tell you to lay aside the hindrances and run the race, the Christian life that you're in, and you're like, oh, I need help. Yes, you do. You do. And I do too. And this brings us right to our second point. How is your weakness to be dealt with and your sense of need met? Look to and follow after Jesus in faith. Lay aside hindrances... Repentance. And now here's faith. This is just another way of speaking about faith. Looking to Jesus. That's faith. This whole book has set forth the theme of faith. Looking to Jesus. Resting and trusting in Christ alone. Another way of speaking about it. You might recall that Habakkuk 2.4 has that, that great phrase, the just shall live by faith. And that gets picked up by, by Martin Luther and the Reformers. You know that. That becomes a big reformational cry. Justification by faith alone. But the, the biblical writers pick that up. And the books of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews all cite Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. And one mid-century preacher noted that... The just seems to be a particular focus of Romans and shall live of Galatians and by faith the book of Hebrews. This is supremely a book about faith. 
which is looking to Jesus. And you might recall from your training that faith consists of three parts we often speak of it as. Of knowledge, there are fancy Latin words for it, but we'll just dispense with them for now. We're not in the seminary classroom. Of knowledge, of belief or assent, and that third element of trust. Think of it this way. The building is on fire and you're pressed to the windows. All escapes are cut off. You're on the 11th floor. Ah, here's the fire company. And you see they've got the ladder trucks, but they only reach up to the 7th floor. Knowing the situation and believing that you will perish, you'll die there unless you jump into the nets that they're holding. You're going to have to jump into the nets. The ladders won't reach you. That last element that leads you to jump into the net is trust. It's showing you really do believe. And saving faith doesn't just involve knowing the truth and the confessions and even saying, I believe it in a kind of historic way. It involves trusting and resting in Christ. That's what looking to Jesus means. Have you been looking elsewhere to the world and its allurements? Look to Jesus Christ alone. Get this. Even though the saints, chapter 11, and all the people that you've ever known who trusted Christ, part of the great cloud of witnesses, though they witness to us, we neither look or pray to them. Calvin put it this way. We don't look to the great throng. We look at them. We look at those who have gone before. But we only look to Jesus. We don't look to our mama or our daddy or anybody else. We look at them, but we only look to Jesus. And this Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's here put as the author and perfecter of our faith. Now the perfecter part, you may be able to catch that one a little more quickly. You might say, yeah, he's the perfecter. He's the one who who trusted his father perfectly and did everything to perfection as our substitute in his active and passive obedience that I spoke about earlier. So that by trusting in him, we could be righteous. We could be perfect before God. He was the man of faith par excellence. The one in whom we trust as an object of faith. So he's even more the object of our faith than the example of faith. He's certainly the example of faith, but he's supremely the object of our faith because he's done everything for us. And so we look to him and not to the saints or anybody else. But what's this business about being the author or founder? Hebrews 13.8 tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's an interesting phrase in Jude 5 says that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt? Yes. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christ was the one who nourished the people in the wilderness. He said that rock from which they drank was Christ. 
So Christ in his person and work is the source of our faith, the author of our faith. Not only the example and the object, but in every sense, the author and the finisher, the beginning and the end of faith. Faith comes from him. He's the giver of it. He's the perfecter of it. It's all about him. And so we both look to and follow after him in this faith. We follow after him in his humiliation. He was in a state of humiliation when he was, before he went to the cross. And he endured the cross, despising the shame. Right? He endured the cross, as we're told here in verse 2. Despising the shame. And we're now in our humiliation. Awaiting exaltation at resurrection. We follow after him. We're to endure the cross. Much shame. We're reviled. We're put upon. But even in the shame of his humiliation, he had joy. Note, he endured and was able to endure the cross. And all that led there, with all of its shame and indignity, one writer said his life was a perpetual Gethsemane. Because of the joy set before him. Notice that. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He endured and was able to endure the cross and all that led there because of the joy set before him. The joy on the other side of his resurrection, of salvation accomplished as he thought about it, and then as it would be applied by his Holy Spirit. This triumph, the anticipation of which brought joy, is realized in his being seated at the right hand of the Father. Because he's completed his work of sacrifice, but he's at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for you right now. That's what Jesus is doing. In your deepest, darkest times, in your time of humiliation, even if your good friend who promises to pray for you forgets, he doesn't. Well, what's the takeaway for you now and the rest of your days? For all of you in this congregation, the Lord who calls you to lay aside hindrances and run the race, to repent, to look to and follow after Jesus, to believe to exercise faith, urges you finally to learn endurance. And so this kind of brings us through it, right? Repent, believe, keep doing it. You know, wash, rinse, repeat. Repent, believe, repeat. Jonathan Edwards once defined... The Christian life, he said, sanctification is continuous conversion. And that's what repenting and believing is, conversion. And he said the Christian life is continuous conversion. Always repenting, believing, repenting, believing. As you run the race. Such endurance has been urged all along in this passage, right? You're to run the race with endurance. You're to endure the cross. All these words are used in the passage. You're not only called to faith in him, the first call of the Christian, but you're, you're to consider him as the example of endurance. Look at that, verse 3. Consider him who endured. He endured. 
such opposition. Note that he, the Lord of glory, endured as none other. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Think of it. Put yourself there. He was no sinner in any sense. He didn't deserve any opposition. As heaven's darling, he only deserved honor and praise and glory. Yet he came down out of the ivory palaces scented with cassia and aloes, as the old song said, into a world of woe where he not only was not honored, but was reviled. His beard was plucked out. He was spat upon. He emptied himself of heavenly glory. This is the hostility that he, en- that he endured, utterly undeserved. This is what he endured. You and I aren't the king of glory who deserve praise. When, when people have something against us, oftentimes there's a good reason that they do. He had done nothing wrong, and yet he took it. He took all of the nasty stuff that was heaped on him. He took it and did not revile in return, but he went to the cross, and for his very tormentors there he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who does that? Who talks that way? He who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who could justly have called 12 legions of angels, as another old song said, to destroy the world and set him free. But instead he died alone for you and me. He took the full measure of the Father's wrath that burned hot against us for our sin. Why? Because he loved us. You can endure. He endured. But part of that endurance was his crying out on the cross, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew the wrath of God and the disfavor and displeasure of God for us in a way that you, if you trusted him, will never know. Oh, you'll know hardship. You'll know difficulty. But you won't know what he took and suffered for you. And we're able to endure. Because he endured in this way, we need to learn from him and not grow weary or faint-hearted in our trials. In all the opposition that comes our way, that comes your way. Think of all that you've dealt with in your life up to this point. Your own suffering, trials, struggle against sin. What do you do? Look to him. Commune with him. Follow after him. Learning to endure hardship means learning to wait on the Lord. You can't endure, and and I realize we live in a world, right? Where people say, our boss may say, I want it yesterday. I remember the first time, it's been a, a few years now, but that I saw an ad online that said, that PDA is so five minutes ago. And I just thought, oh boy, I know we're sunk. I know it, so saying something is so five minutes ago. I'm a historian, okay? I think in very large chunks of time. Most people today have no idea about what? Much of anything. They really don't. They just know their lives and their blinkered and they, you know, what's on their screen. 
And so waiting on the Lord, which occurs over the process of a lifetime, people are strangers to it. John Milton had to learn this. He was perhaps the greatest poet in the English language. That's that's debatable, but certainly one of the greatest. And he went blind. And he was so stirred up because he, he recognizes that there's so much. He hadn't even written some of his greatest poems as, as he was hoping to write. And he's thinking, how can I do this now that I'm blind? It's interesting that some of the greatest poet, poetry in the English language was written by a blind man. Just like one of the greatest symphonies... Beethoven's Ninth was written by a man totally deaf. Very interesting. And so he expressed this sense that he had in this great sonnet on his blindness that really is a great little lesson about what it means to wait on the Lord, to learn to wait, which is the heart of endurance. Milton said, When I consider how my light is spent... Ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask, but patience to prevent that murmur soon replies. God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke. They serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. We need to learn to wait on the Lord. How do we do it? Well, we wait on Him in the ordinances. We can't be so busy, so distracted. Back to the first point. Remember what I said? Home visits. I'm too busy to read the Bible. To pray. To think on the things of God. You know how Martin Luther put it when he was so busy? He said, I am so busy today, I do not see how I can get by with less than three hours of prayer. Now, okay, he told us we had to pray three hours. Knock it off. No, I didn't. I'm telling you, though, here's a man who knows that you can't run this race in your own strength. What was he doing in those hours of prayer? Laying aside hindrances, looking to Jesus. How do we wait on Him? We wait on Him in the ordinances that He's given us. The Word, the sacraments, and prayer. I'm a Presbyterian. Prayer is in there, sorry. It's by a faithful use of these means of grace, in public and private, that we're able to go on to endure, to keep from burning out year in and year out. It's by these means of grace that the Spirit builds us up so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted in this marathon called the Christian life. These means, especially preaching, nurture and increase our faith. And faith that enables waiting and endurance is not some cold, impersonal thing. 
The heart of faith is trusting in Christ. Back to that illustration. Jumping out the window. Trusting in Him. It's by this personal, ever-renewed act that we know blessing, that we know endurance. God's gracious keeping of us now and in all the coming years. Well, we wait till that day that Jesus returns, when faith becomes sight, when hope is realized, and when love, the greatest of all, fills our horizon as never before, when we see our Savior face to face. Until then, lay aside every hindrance and run the race, looking to Jesus in faith, learning endurance in all of life's challenges. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this word. May you bless it to us in Jesus' name.